Welcome to the World Art Now podcast, exploring the world through the material culture of its people, in association with Michael Backman Limited. This is Michael Backman, and I am here in Bangkok with Twip Rite Napakon. Twip is a researcher and writer and a collector, and his book called Unseen Burma has just been published. It's a book on uh, early uh, photographs of Burma. Uh, it's been published by River Books. It's available worldwide uh, from Amazon and any bookstore. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic new addition to, to this area. Tweep, uh, congratulations on your book, Unseen Burma. Thank you. It looks fantastic. And uh, I'm right to assume it's based on your um, private collection of photographs. Yes, okay. it's, it's the photo are all mine. Right. <laughs> right. And, and so for how long have you been collecting these photographs? Uh, I would say, I think 15 years, I think, altogether that I'm right. trying to you know, bit by bit, accumulate them all together. Right, right. And 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 so, what were your main sources for for the photographs? Um, a lot of them actually come from Europe, the UK, especially because there are a lot of colonial photographs that's mm. been brought back to UK, Europe, and a lot of travelers, like um, American as well, or sometimes I found some from Germany even, but the later one from the thirties onwards especially of the local Myanmar people, those sometime I, I came, I saw them and I found them in Myanmar. Oh, okay, yes. so, so the book, um, what's the time period for the photographs? Um, I, I frame it from, it's a hundred years. Right. From, I, I set it at 1962 and yes. I backtracked for 100 years. Okay, right. And so, so as you were just alluding to it, it's a, it's a combination of colonial photographs, but also photos taken by Myanmar people yes. themselves. Yes. And that's, that actually makes it quite unique because several books have been published on uh, you know, the photographs of, of, say, colonial Burma, um, but usually they were by well-known photographers at the time, studio photographers and so on, who are usually right. British, I think. Right. So this is probably the first book that actually combines the two in this manner. Would you say? I well, I I think so. That but when I first started to do this, you know, when I look into what I have and I, I try to curate everything, um, my my first intention was when I was growing up, you know, as a kid, I didn't know anything much about Myanmar. Right. Apart from that, it's a right. neighboring country, and, and, and you grew up in Thailand. In, in Thailand, yes. And my our impression was like Myanmar was poor, always unstable with political problems. Mm. But then when I, when I'm into this field of studying, collecting all the antiques and art objects, I learned so much that Myanmar used to be so big, and very cosmopolitan, very well developed. Yeah. And that was during late colonial all the way to Independence Day. So that's a period. And I, I think that's at one point it was actually the world's biggest producer or biggest exporter of, of rice. Yes, rice, mm. teak wood mm. and all. So mm. that so that's why I I pinned down a time period of nineteen sixty two mm. because that's when like the military took over that the coup happened. Right, and you had the Burmese way to socialism after that. Yes. And that became very closed yes. and no one could get in and yes. so on. Mm. So to me, it more, it's more like a tribute 
because I want to showcase how Myanmar used to be so big, so beautiful, mm, mm. and that 100 years time period, it actually captures the time when it was still, you know, Upper Burma was still ruled by the kings, yes. all the way to colonial, all the way to its brief independence time. Yes. So it 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 spans um, 100 years, but it spans covering quite a few things in there that that encapsulate what Burma. Mm. back then was mm. all about. And how many photographs are actually published in the book? Um, more than 300. I think right, 320. Right. I can't remember exactly, but it's sure, yeah. more than 300 that photos. Yes. And, and as a proportion of your total collection, what is it most of what you have? or uh, <laughs> There are much more than that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, there's much more than that. But, you know, for me, mm. when I start collecting... Um, I, my first interception was with a lot of, as you mentioned, the, all the um, celebrated photographer, the commercial live photographer, the commercial yes. photographer. So there's a lot of beautiful, well choreographed shots and mm. all those things. And mm. that's what you found a lot when, when you talk about colonial photographs mm. of Myanmar. But then more and more when I get into deep into the, the subject, I found myself being fascinated by more of the shots done by the amateur photographers. Yes. And, and you found a lot of that post-1900 because at that time, the development of the portable camera, the film camera was already there. Right. Then, right. then it's easier for just normal people to take any shots that they see. And I find that it's very charming and you get to see mm. the real Indeed, look yes. of Myanmar. Because yeah. often, uh, and this is often a problem with the studio shots, that uh, it'll be like a, a Burmese lady, but it, it turns out it's usually a Burmese actress or a famous singer or something like that. Right. And uh, so you don't get a sense of what people were really like. Everyone ends up looking like an aristocrat or a court dancer or something like that. Yes. And, and with then, the costumes and And so a on. lot of the models on those photographs, studio photograph shots, I, I think people who pose for it they they probably never seen their own photo because uh, it was meant to be consumed by colonial travelers yes. and, and, and foreigners who came to visit. Yes. Rather than, you know, the local come as a clientele. Yes took the photograph and enjoyed their own image. It's yes. not like that no, in the no. early days. In fact, they used to compile books, didn't they, I think, and, and then sell them in like curio shops and, and yes. souvenir shops. In, in Rangoon, uh, in, yes. you know, in, in the Mandalay as well. Yes, yes, in the uh, early part of the 20th century. I think what, from, from what I gather, the way the photographic studio run is that um, the studio will go out and take so many good shots, mm. some studio photograph of some models and everything, and that will be in their archives. And then you as a client come, you can look into the archive and then pick and choose what you like. Oh, They'll develop it and then, and then bind them into the photograph oh, album really? for you to take home. Ah. And, I don't, and on top mm. of that, you can add a few shots of your own taken at the studios. Because right. I've come across a few albums that maybe four or five first pages, these are all personal photos of someone. So it means that must be the client, but the rest of the album are all the kind of made the the, mm. the shots from the archive that mm. they might have taken, you know, mm. pick and choose and then put them all together mm. as a souvenir mm. album. Mm. Yes. Mm. And and so you've written an essay, uh, I guess, to to, yes. to start off, uh, yes. and uh, and then you've got analysis of uh, like uh, captions, which are analyses of, of each of the photographs. Yes, yeah. I think um, my publisher um, Narissa and I we mm. sort of agree that. 
we would go for the long caption, right? Because you know, with the caption, that's the only way to to unlock anything that you see in the photograph and allow the the reader, the viewer, to enjoy yeah. what is in that photograph. I think that's excellent because yes. so many of these sorts of books will just have uh, the image and just a one-line caption, and yes. it's not enough. Yes. Uh, yes, and and then it's almost outrageous that someone then says, "Well, I've written a book," because uh, <laughs> they've barely written anything. So, so yours is a, a, a great improvement on many of the other ones that we've seen. Well, I, I hope the reader enjoys it because along the journey, you know, we've been struggling because trying to fit everything into the page, but there's so much text for each photo. Oh, no, no, I think yes. from my point of view, I think that's fantastic, yes. <laughs> giving my, my research focus and so on. Um, right. What about the timing? Because obviously uh, now, you know, the political situation yet again in, in Myanmar, Burma, is problematic and arguably could be worse than almost it's ever been. Uh, it's reached a new level of outrageousness. Uh, was that a factor in, in deciding when to publish or not to publish maybe or delaying it or so I think on? The idea conceived before everything took mm. place but then when, when it happened of course we we took you know a little bit of time to really see mm. what this is leading to and what the situation was like. Mm. But I think at the end of the day, we feel that as more and more that the situation progress in whichever way, we're not sure. But more and more, I think people will be nostalgic of the past, especially in Myanmar. And I think it, it, it's a good way of, of you know, providing a tribute, something mm. that people can, mm. can enjoy. And as they yearn to the past of what was right. like and you to be good. So I, I think it's, in a way, I, I, I look at it from a positive right. point. Uh, tweet, yeah, that, that's yes. a fantastic um, point of view, actually. Yes. It's a, yeah, because and I think that's more broadly the case with antiques as well. I think a lot of collectors, when the yes. world is so messed up sometimes, uh, and there are so many uncertainties, uh, a lot of collectors just love collecting because it, it's, right. it's, it's sort of looking back to the past where you have the certainties of things that have gone before right. and rather than the uncertainties of the future. And I think it's a comfort for people. Yes, and, and to me, I, I talked to quite a few of my Myanmar friends. Um, what they found is that in the previous work that has been published, as you mentioned, a lot of them dealt with only colonial photographs. Yes. When Myanmar people look at it, it almost like, like there's a distance. Like a, yeah, it's not really them. strange it, from it. it yes. Yeah, yeah. But with this book, I incorporate a lot of photos from the from the 30s onwards, yes. all the way to 1962. Mm. So there's so many photos that they can relate to. Oh my mm. God, this looks just like what I have at home, my mm. grandmothers, my grandparents and their wedding. And this is what was like in, in Yangon when I was growing up like 20 years, 30 years ago. Yes. So I think it, 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 it balance off between colonial things and also something that the local yeah. were used to in the old days. I know this is going to sound like uh, you know asking a parent to, to choose uh, their favorite child uh, from maybe three or four of them. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite photograph? Um, to me, my, my photograph, my first favorite group would be portraitures. Yes. Because you know, I, I also study a lot of um, costume textiles. So mm. that, that's my first landing point because mm. I want to find um, some photographic reference mm. on how the textile was used, how people dressed up and everything back in the old day. So portraiture is my most favorite. And then the yeah. second one would be the, I would say like scenes of ways of life, lifestyles right. and ceremonies and all those things. Mm. Mm. 
mm. because when I when I approach them, I I read the photo probably from uh, anthropological perspective. Yes, I, I try to understand what were they doing in there, why did they yes. wear that? Yes, you know that that sort of thing. Yes. So in yes. terms of the ceremonies or, or or everyday life, do you see a lot of religious ceremonies like Buddhist ceremonies and things like that? Yes. And so yes. often, when a, say a, a family had a, a like a son who was uh, who became a novice monk, right? Was that often recorded as part of what? Because it's quite a, a, a big thing to celebrate. Yes, in, in I have Myanmar. a few beautiful photos mm-hmm. in there as well. Mm. Um, one photo would be for for girls when they had the ear boring ceremonies. Right. And a few fo- a few photos for boy for the officiation ceremonies, right? Because right. these two are very significant. They they are like rites of passage yes. ceremonies for for Myanmar people, and most of the time is the occasion where the parents, the kids, and everything they will dress up, they'll put in whatever best costume they have, mm. and of course, mm. take photograph. Yes. Just Yeah, and I think these are the sorts of photographs that uh, collectors always like because uh, when it shows costume and jewelry, then collectors uh, of costume and jewelry like to have the photographs to go with the the actual items they have. Especially with early, early photo, like late 19th centuries. At that time, you know, you know what in Myanmar, there's no, idea, there's no concept of costume jewelry just yet. Mm. So a lot of things that people put on mostly are real. Right, right, like <laughs> alien pieces. Yes, yes. What about food? Uh, um, is there much uh, to do with food? Or I love Burmese food myself. I went to the most uh, fantastic <laughs> Burmese restaurant the well, other day here in Bangkok. But well, uh, unfortunately, they. I think they. It's not like nowadays that we have our camera eat the food first on the table. Well, we Instagram it like <laughs> I do constantly. <laughs> I think back then they they didn't intentionally take the photo of the food itself. Yes. yes. You know? But there were some ceremonies that we see that the food was involved. For right. example, in weddings where mm. the bride and groom would feed each other a morsel of rice as a you know to signify the unions of one another. And also, I have one photograph that have a kind of food hawker. Mm. On the platform of Trader Gong Pagoda, and are you able to go into Burma or uh, Myanmar at the moment? Is it quite easy for you to go in, and, and have you gone recently, or um, or not? I haven't been there yet, but I think um, technically to enter the country for Thai people, I think now it's it's okay. We can yes. go in yes. without any res- restrictions yes. or anything. I mean, yes. you've been before, but you mean you haven't been since the, yeah, the since the changes yes. since since yeah. the COVID. Yeah. But I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try to go soon. One of the striking things I've noticed uh, this time being in Bangkok is the sheer number now of Burmese people working here in in Thailand, and it's really grown. Yes, and it's also grown in Malaysia and and Singapore. Right, and I think uh, because of COVID, uh, a lot of uh, particularly in Singapore, a lot of the Chinese who are working in hotels and so on from, from mainland China right. have been displaced by Burmese, uh, and that's quite an interesting development. And so it means that the, I guess the overseas Burmese or uh, or like the Burmese diaspora right. now has dramatically increased probably in the last couple of years. Oh, in the last couple of years, yes. But they've mm. been in Thailand for, yeah. for quite some time yes. already. I think at least 10 years that, that okay. um, labor from Myanmar has helped to fuel the economy of Thailand. And I think more and more um, the Thai authority is trying to 
legalize everything. There right. are so many regulation that has been passed out to help those earlier okay. comer that somehow to just to correct their paperwork. Okay, because they hear it illegally, yes. basically, and, and yeah. also to try yeah. to put all the benefit that they can receive up to the standard. Yes. As the same as the Thai labor as oh, well. Okay, so they're not exploited. Yes. Yeah, oh, that's a very yes. good point. Yes. And I can see that over time, this could be a very good revenue earner for, for Myanmar uh, in the way that the Filipino expatriate people yes. are, are a huge earner for the Philippines. And I think for Thai people, we we feel that Myanmar people, you know, they are Buddhist, so yes. so they are like us. So yeah. there's a lot of sense of being compassionate to one another. And I think Myanmar people are very friendly and very good heart in in, mm. in nature mm. so I think they have no way of you know working with us or assimilating into our working culture yes, yes. yeah no it's interesting and it's only a turnaround on, on the um, 18th century late 18th century when in fact um, we're only in Bangkok today because uh, the former capital of Thailand was um, sacked and completely destroyed by the Burmese <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> so, but it's a complete flip around isn't it uh, in the fortunes of the two countries where uh, uh, you know the um, uh, the Burmese came and and uh, did what they did and, uh, and and now in in actual fact they're sending out guest workers uh, to Thailand. It's uh, the reversal of fortune is very stark. Uh, <laughs> well, I was I was talking about this point with um, some people the other day that you know when I was growing up that was part of the impression that we we learned about the Burmese that ah. you know how our previous capital was sacked because of the great war we had with the Burmese yes. and, and all those things but I think it was part of um, certain in the previous day how the history was told you know when, when you mm. know it depends on who wrote the history mm. you wouldn't write the history so that you are the villains you know you have to write the history in a way that you is portrayed as a hero yes but but if more and more that i learned from academic point of views and, and you know, analytical point of view back then you know there's a certain tradition of warfare you know it just happened that the final scene was the burmese you know attack thailand yes but at the same time, we also attack other empires as well. So it's a sort of, you know, warfare traditions back then. Yes. You know, when, when you're big, when, you, you, when you're so huge, powerful, you have to invade other. And by invading, it's not to kill everyone, but rather to, to combine them in, under your power, your sovereignty. Well, yeah. you know? That's a very That's good it. point, actually, because that, and that was very Southeast Asian, that when there was an invasion, um, uh, very often, the, the the death count, the body count, wasn't enormous. Uh, what what they tended to do was to capture uh, people. Yes. So they'd take the gold and and other treasures, but they'd also take the human capital, i.e., the, the skilled workers, and take them back yes. to to the capital. Yeah. And so I think um, uh, at the time, Thailand or Siam, as it was then, lost a lot of its artists and and yes. silversmiths and, yes, and artisans. Uh, yeah, yes, like, they're all taken back. Yes, and even some royalties, but all these yes. people, when they were forced to move to Myanmar, mm. back then to Amarapura and all the old capital, yes. they, were, they were allocated you know, plots of land to stay. Mm. They were put back into what they were doing when they were in, in Ayutthaya. Not that they were forced to do labor work or anything, no. you know, the royalty remained royalty, but as a, you know, yes. maybe, you know, under the... Yes, it's one of the most extraordinary things, actually, and, and led to the most amazing uh, degree of skills transfer when it came to material culture. And I think that um, 
what's always amazed me is, is say when it comes to silver work that in um, Myanmar um, all of the silversmiths have always been ethnic uh, um, Burmese essentially or right. probably ethnic Thai because they were right. captured and uh, and then but in Thailand, uh, most of the silversmiths and, and other similar groups of um, artisans were actually ethnic Chinese who probably came in after uh, all of the ethnic Thais were taken off to Burma, leaving a gap in the market for um, Chinese to come from mainland China to, to come and do those skills or those trades that were formerly done by local people. Right. I think the Chinese silversmith in Thailand, they probably center, I think they center around like central Bangkok, yes. central Thailand, mm. especially Bangkok, mm. catering to the Thai elites. Mm. And, but then there's also another group of silversmiths up in the north, in Lanna, in Chiang Mai. Mm. And, and those are more related to the, the Thai speaking group, the Thai Lu and the Shan in, right. in Myanmar. Yes. So that's, that, those are more related. But if you look at their the the technique they use it's it's quite distinctively different that you know mm. the mm. the Chinese silversmith would do a lot of chasing technique yes. but not so much on repoussé work yes whereas if you go to Shan State Lanna all the way to Myanmar they do a lot of the repoussé work right but not so much of engraving or chasing per se okay yes. okay hmm. so so that's mm. that's that's one of the the key distinction. And so what, what other um, areas of collecting do you do, as, uh, apart from <laughs> photography? Um, my starting point was textiles. Mm. Then I go all the way into textiles and everything. Then I landed on photographs. But always Burmese or, or wider? At, at the beginning, my, my interest was quite wide. Right. But now I try to scope down. Burmese textile was one thing. Mm. And the next one that I'm still collecting is the Indian trade cloth. But they're getting very difficult to find. Very and, expensive. And, and very yes, yes, <laughs> extremely. Our friends in Singapore are making sure of that. Yes, uh. <laughs> and you know it's not good to come by good piece, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what I'm still collecting, mm. and then photographs, and then it it's like it's an addiction, you know. From from textiles, you want to see how they were worn. You sort photographs. And then from photograph, apart from photo of people, you saw a photo of other things in their lifestyle. Yes. Then it got me into some other things <laughs> that you saw in the photos. So I'm now into Burmese silver as well. Okay. Or any other, you know, right. Um, right. things Burmese that fancy me, you know, yes. I tend to collect yeah. them. No, I think it's a really important yes. collecting area because um, Burmese material is often underrepresented in, in particularly in foreign museums. Uh, the UK has quite a lot, obviously, because of the colonial era. Right. But most other countries have almost nothing, you know, very little. Um, I think one of the thing is the way, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm right or not, but it's just, I think the way the Western collector, especially in the early days, look at the Burmese art, you know, they look at probably like Mandalay styles or the later period colonial, something more very, it's... It's full of details, yes. but but people like something earlier than that. I've, I've come across a few yeah. writing from colonial yeah. time that when they analyze it, they felt that 
at that time, what was contemporarily made was too gaudy, too much. Yes. And they yearn for something more classical. Yes. It's almost like Ming and Qing, you yes, know. Yes. Western collector in the early days, they like Ming stuff. They not really prefer Qing stuff because oh, it's yeah. too. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I find it frustrating because, uh, from my uh, way of thinking, and certainly in what we deal in, um, I think 18th and 19th century items are, are fantastic, and and you know the level of artistry, and say for the Burmese silversmiths, you know what they managed to achieve. I think is far, far right. superior to what was done in Europe. Right. Um, you know, European silver work is usually about casting, and and right. and so the, the the great silversmiths of Europe were not that great because, in actual fact, the real greatness was in the cast, the people who made the models for the casts. Right. Right. So the cast makers were the great uh, uh, aspect of that. Um, whereas the silversmiths in Burma did everything from beginning to end, and right. and were so good at it. Yes. Um, and, and yet this is the one area that many museums uh, won't collect and it's the same with Sri Lankan, that you go to an exhibition of Sri Lankan um, artworks and it'll be like 9th, 10th century and they completely ignore the, the absolute pinnacle of the 18th mm. and 19th centuries. Uh, right. But it's very much the same with uh, Myanmar or Burma. Uh, although I do understand the British Museum is doing an exhibition in, in a year or two. Uh, wow. on, yeah. Which is exciting and on any genre of objects in particular. I believe or? so. I believe so, and hopefully it won't be too distorted in favour of the early material, which has been done to <laughs> death. And hopefully it'll be more like what we like. Uh, so, uh, do you have plans for any other books? Uh, well, if after this, my actually I want to do the book on textiles, ah. but somehow textiles took more time because I have to research. I've mm. done a lot of primary research in mm. Myanmar and trying to put together something. But somehow the idea of photograph books came before that. And then mm. I think writing on the captions of a photograph is, I have to say, is easier than, than, than writing the text about the textile because that's a, that's a hard research that I need to. Yes. But rather for captions, I can do a lot of secondary research yes. and, and a lot of things that I've accumulated mm. from studying that mm. I can just write and then explain the photograph. You know, so it's mm. so. Hopefully, after this, right. I'll, I'll do the the, the right. textile book. Well, I look yes. very much forward to that as well. Yes, uh, <laughs> <fantastic>. hopefully, <laughs> I'll have to do it. You know, I've, I've I've promised a lot of people, especially the local people, that they they be they were very kind to me. You know, yes, gave me interviews and all these things. You know, yes. and and, and uh, look, it's a great way to write a book is to lock yourself in by promising everyone that you're going to do it, and then you get to the point where you absolutely <laughs> have to because it's embarrassing not to. So <laughs> you do yes. because otherwise, I mean, writing is such a difficult, lonely task, and uh, yes. and it, it, it's something you don't need to do. So it's very easy to put it off. Right. Uh, so you do need to find these ways to lock yourself into yes to, to making sure that you do it. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, Tori, thank you so much. This has been really, really good, actually. Really, thank you. Really You're most welcome. Thank you for the opportunity for sharing this, and I you hope have been all listening the readers to the World the Art Now. Oh, podcast, thank you. And you're very welcome. In association right. okay. with Michael Backman Limited. To hear more, visit worldartnow.com. <laughs>